0: You might have to convince me to to eat a fine-looking turnip while we're talking about it. I don't know.
1: (laughs) Welcome to Spur of the Moment, the podcast of Colorado State University's spur campus in Denver, Colorado.
0: And the reality is that you can have the healthiest soil in the world, but but, but if you don't have enough water, it's very difficult. There are counties in this country where the poverty level has been higher than 20% for 30 years or more.
1: On this podcast, we talk with experts in food, water, and health about how they are tackling the big challenges in these areas. I'm Jocelyn Hiddle, and I'm thrilled to be joined today by Tom Vilsack, U.S. Secretary of Agriculture. Secretary Vilsack has also been the governor of Iowa, mayor of Mount Pleasant, Iowa, lawyer, and has worn many other hats throughout his career. I look forward to talking more about this professional journey. Welcome, Secretary Vilsack.
0: Jocelyn, it's great to be with you. And uh, perhaps the the title that's most appropriate for this podcast is uh, a senior advisor to the chancellor of CSU, uh, which I have enjoyed uh, the opportunity to get to know the Colorado State um, family uh, and certainly Chancellor Frank and and you and many of the other folks who have been involved in the SPUR uh, project.
1: Wonderful. Thank you. We have been honored to have you with us over the last, I guess it's been about three years. It has. Wonderful. So it's great to be speaking with you today. We are speaking during inauguration week in January of 2021 with your official nomination and confirmation process for Secretary of Agriculture coming soon. Of course, this is a process you are familiar with, having served as Secretary of Agriculture for all eight years of the Obama administration. So first of all, congratulations.
0: Well, thanks. I've been telling people I'm not sure whether it's congratulations or condolences. Uh, You know, the uh, this has never happened before in the history of the Department of Agriculture that someone has come, uh, has been secretary, had a, another administration with a different secretary, and that individual comes back for a, a second stint. Uh, the first time you get a job like this, you are excited, you're nervous, you're anxious to get to work. Uh, this time, uh, a little, a little fear, a little anxiety, in large part because you, you I recognize the enormity of the of the challenge and the breadth of the Department of Agriculture far better than I did uh, 12 years ago when I took the job the first time.
1: Absolutely, the learning curve will be a little different this time around.
0: It, it will be, but of course, this is a different time. Uh, it's it, It's amazing that in a relatively short period of time, the department is different. Uh, the challenges, uh, some of which are the same, but many of them are different. Some are larger, some are smaller. Uh, the The times, obviously with COVID, and the pandemic uh, and the crisis that that has created both in terms of health and in terms of the economy, uh, place a premium on quick action. uh, And of course, sometimes within um, the federal government and within departmental uh, uh, regulations and so forth, quick action sometimes not easy to accomplish.
1: So speaking of quick action, I, I do want to talk about your long-term strategies as well, but maybe we can start with your first 100 days. What are your initial priorities as you return to the role?
0: Well, you know, you'd like to be able to walk into a building uh, on the first day and say to your team, uh, we've got three major things we want to do or two major things we want to do. Uh, the reality is I'm going to walk in there if I get it if confirmed, I'm going to walk in there and I'm going to say we have eight different priorities that we have to deal with. It it represents the breadth of the department. Uh, You start with the obvious. Uh, We have a role to play in in COVID and the COVID relief effort. That role, first and foremost, is to make sure that we get nutrition assistance to people who are in need and to get it in a way that is most convenient and most usable for uh, folks who are struggling financially. The second piece of this is to rebuild the trust, especially for those in rural areas, about the importance of social distancing and masking and testing and vaccinations. The sad reality is that today, roughly half of America is still suspect, not trusting completely and fully the notion of vaccination. Well, if we don't get folks vaccinated, it will be more difficult for us to get on the other side of this. So as a, a department that is trusted in rural places, we have to use that trust to educate and encourage people to understand the importance of vaccination. And then once we get on the other side, we obviously are a department that will help begin Uh, as the president uh, likes to say, to build America back better, to build rural America back better, and we will have a a role to play. So COVID really, really important. Nutrition assistance and security. So often we hear people talk about food insecurity. The fact that uh, uh, 42 million Americans are currently uh, taking SNAP benefits. The fact that 40% of African-American families are what is called food insecure. I want to change the nomenclature here I don't want to talk about food insecurity. I would prefer to talk about nutrition insecurity. They're not necessarily the same thing. And you can be food secure, but you can also be nutrition deficient. Um, and I think it's about trying to figure out ways in which we can encourage people to understand the link between a healthy diet and healthy outcomes and greater re- resistance to, to viruses and the various things that we're going to confront in the future. So we're gonna talk a lot about how we can sh- create, uh, how we can implement nutrition programs in a way that advances nutrition security census. uh in- Incredibly important part. Climate, uh, the opportunity to, to, to rebuild back better uh, by focusing on a regenerative agricultural um, uh, future uh, for American agriculture. When the president uh, campaigned, he talked about a net zero agricultural future for the U.S. Uh, and that's certainly a, an aspirational goal that I think carries with it tremendous opportunity uh, to increase and improve farm income. So that's something we'll be focusing on. We'll focus obviously on the force. Uh, Senator Bennett and others understand and appreciate that significant investments have to be made in that system to improve it. We need to be a partner with him and others who want to put major resources and see our forest just in the same way we see roads and bridges and ports and dams. Airports, this is infrastructure, we need to invest in it. Open and competitive markets. Uh, The ability of local and regional food systems to create new market opportunities uh, for farmers. So that farmers of whatever size um, have a market that they can enter into competitively. So that's a priority. Uh, Equity and justice issues. Um, Sadly, the Department of Agriculture has a sordid history and has had for some time in the area of civil rights. We began to address that in the Obama administration. There is much, much more work to be done in that space. That's a priority. And then finally, uh, the morale and structure of USDA, we wanna make sure that that people understand that uh, first and foremost, we care about the people who work for USDA and wanna make sure they're protected and uh, that they have job satisfaction. So lots to do, obviously, um, in the first 100 days like to see action and activity in all of those areas.
1: Wonderful. There are many who appreciate that the Biden administration will bring people such as yourself with experience back into um, the administration. And and speaking of all you have to get done in the first 100 days, that does mean with your experience, you can hit the ground running. In addition to what you've articulated there is in those eight different areas are there things that you were not able to do or see fulfilled in your first terms as the head of USDA that's the US Department of Agriculture that you're prioritizing this time
0: Well the four uh, several things that are specific to Colorado uh in Colorado State University I mean we didn't we did a lot of work on the forest but we didn't get the job done obviously because we continue to have massive forest fires uh, that are a result of not a year or two, or one or two uh, administrations, but it's a result of of a long, long term uh, failure to adequately invest. Uh, again, Senator Bennett understands and appreciate. I had a conversation with him, and he he understands that we're talking about a major investment. This is not something where you can put a couple hundred billion dollars and say you're doing something. You need there literally needs to be billions of dollars of, of better forest management. So that's one area. I, I think civil rights and and equity issues. We made progress uh, sort of on the surface. We dealt with the issues that were most prominent at the time, settlement of claims against the department. Uh, literally tens of thousands of claims for discrimination had been filed. We settled most of those uh, and resolved many of them. But we didn't get down deep into the systems themselves to figure out where there may be barriers, either intentional or unintentional, that make it difficult for socially disadvantaged. Producers, Black farmers, Hispanic farmers, Native American farmers, women farmers, to be able to access and utilize fully and completely and fairly the programs of USDA. So we have some work, real work to do, hard work to do in that space. That needs to be a continuation of what was started: nutrition assistance, secure nutrition security. We 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 tried to improve uh, school lunches. Uh, we tried uh, with the uh, My Plate effort to try to educate Americans about what that healthy diet consists of, more work to be done in that area for sure. Uh, And we, again, started on climate, uh, but we just got started on climate before that administration ended, and the expectation was it would continue in future administrations. Obviously, we've had a bit of a disruption here for the last four years, but I think we're going to get back on track very quickly uh, in the Biden-Harris administration.
1: So related to climate, as you know, the SPUR campus is focused on some intersections, one of which is the intersection between food and water. And obviously with climate change, water is at the forefront of a a lot of folks' minds, people in agriculture and not. This past year, we've seen the impact of too little water on food production in large swaths of the country and too much water in, in others, something you experienced personally in Iowa. Can you talk a little bit about that intersection between food and water and how you're going to be addressing it and areas where the USDA in particular is, is well-suited to do work?
0: Well, well, first of all, I think that the, the Spur campus in particular and the, the work in establishing the Spur campus and the commitment of that campus to water issues, I think is inc- really, really important. Why? Because when people talk about climate, when they talk about agriculture, they often talk, they almost immediately go to soil. This is soil health, absolutely important, very important. Regenerative uh, uh, practices, uh, cover crops, getting away from monoculture uh, and more diverse uh, crop rotations, rotational grazing. A lot of the, uh, of the, of the uh, mechanisms and practices that, that will lead to healthier soil. We don't have that same level of conversation about water. And the reality is that you can have the healthiest soil in the world, but if, but, but if you don't have enough water, it's very difficult. So what do you do about that? Well, first, you have to raise people's awareness of the issue. And I think USDA has the opportunity to do that. Uh, we had a drought uh, resiliency partnership uh, arrangement at USDA when I was secretary. Uh, that's sort of been put in the back background. I think we need to bring that back up. So we we, we give people, we make sure that they understand either the lack of water, too much water, is front of mind at USDA. Uh, We obviously have some research uh, components to this in terms of, well, okay, uh, if we're faced with a changing climate, if that's going to have an impact on how much water we have, what do we do? How do we reuse it? How do we conserve it? How do we uh, create more precision in the agriculture that we have to make sure that the water that is necessary for agriculture is used in the most efficient way? What kind of crop systems do we need? What kind of root systems do we need to develop? What kind of what kind of uh, research will help us understand th- those systems better to be able to uh, to make the right decisions? Um, and, and how do we just raise the overall awareness, not just of people in the rural areas and on the farm and on the ranch, but people in Denver, uh, people in cities to say, you know, just because you turn on the tap, don't take it for granted because you're going to be confronted with some serious challenges here in the future. Um, so USDA uh, has a, a multitude of, of ways. On the rural development side, it's about water treatment and it's about making sure that that small communities have access to clean water and healthy water and decent water. And how, again, can we equip those smaller communities that may not be in the same position with an outfit like Denver Water that's got a whole bunch of folks thinking about these issues and figuring out creative ways to deal with them? That that doesn't necessarily translate to a town that's got 2,000 people or the mayor's a part-time mayor and they've got a City administrator who works 40 hours a week and has no idea about uh, About these kinds of things. So it's uh, I think usda through extension through the land-grant university system A partnership that we have a lot of information can be shared with people So there's greater sensitivity rural development resources can be invested in the right, uh, the right water treatment uh, infrastructure uh, the farms uh, of the farm, uh production and, and conservation folks can talk about how best to utilize the water resources that you have, uh, in the most efficient, effective way. And the research, education, uh, and economics folks at USDA can help with the research uh, projects to make sure that we, in the future, do a better job. So a lot of places where that's gonna intersect.
1: And can you speak a little about how you see the work that you just described that USDA will be focusing on? How will that interact with the new Office of Climate Policy with Gina McCarthy, the former head of EPA?
0: Well, I'll tell you, she is a force. <laughs> I have uh, dealt with her and worked with her when she was EPA administrator. She's she's tough. She's smart. She's committed. She's focused. And uh, I think she understands the directive from the president and vice president that uh, climate is to be uh, front and center. Is to be one of the signature policy issues and issues of this administration. I think what we can do at USDA is come to her and say we can be one of your early wins. Uh, We can be a place where we. Uh, If we can certify and measure conservation uh, results, uh, carbon storage, uh, sequestration, we can help create the kind of market opportunity that will encourage more landowners to take the steps necessary to do things that will result in a regenerative agricultural approach, healthier soil, more carbon being stored, um, uh, reduced emissions within agriculture, to the point where the U.S. reaches the goal that the president has set, which is net zero emissions by the year 2050 for American agriculture. And the good thing about this is I think that, uh, that those in agriculture, uh, whether large or small, are beginning to recognize the significance and importance of this action because the market's demanding it. The uh, markets here in the U.S., many of the large uh, uh, food companies are, are, are wanting to be able to make the case to their consumers to their customers, that they are uh, selling them a product that is helping the environment, not hurting it. Um, and certainly internationally, uh, the, the ability to export food products uh, and, and crops that were grown in this country. Again, we have to be able to make the sustainability argument uh, because our competitors certainly are. And I think we're going to continue to see an ever-increasing uh, understanding worldwide of the importance of all this. So in- incredibly important. So. Working with Gina, I think we can go and say, look, here if we have the resources, if we have the flexibility in some of the programs at USDA, we can make investments. We can basically showcase how to do this on a large scale. We can have a series of farms, for example, that that would showcase the technology that exists today to get to to a, a zero emission dairy farm, uh, to get to reduced emissions uh, for other types of agriculture, all of which can help make the case that we're, we're headed in the right direction on climate. So I think it can be hopefully a, a good partnership, a solid partnership, and one that uh, where she sees the benefit of really bringing USDA in at the, at the front end.
1: And this this is maybe a parallel question. You, you'll have a new colleague in Eric Lander who'll lead the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Which the president-elect has elevated to a cabinet-level position. Any thoughts on how your respective agencies will work together on climate and a whole host of other issues where you'll doubtlessly intersect?
0: Well, in the previous administration, we worked very closely with the, uh, with the Science and Technology Office. Uh, but I think in this particular administration, the relationship will be even more close. Uh, will be even closer, and I think the reason for that is that in the previous Trump administration, uh, I think there was a uh, a, a lack of. Uh, of, of trust in science there was a uh, I, I think there was a the, You know The idea that maybe science didn't have all the answers and there was a reason to distrust it And so I I think there's going to be a, a heightened responsibility on our part To maintain science Integrity not to let politics sort of interfere with the science that's being done Uh, but to make sure that we that we embrace the science that we 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 embrace the notion the uh Solutions that science can develop for us as we deal with issues of climate uh, As we deal with with some of the other issues confronting uh, american agriculture Uh, Precision agriculture is science-based climate uh, climate smart agriculture is science-based The ability to utilize water more effectively and efficiently is science-based So I think there are a, a lot of different ways in which we can intersect that's a big job. He's got um, because science plays in a in health I think we're just obviously going to be a tremendous uh, focus on health um, Because of, of covid but just simply because of the healthcare costs associated with uh, the current state of health healthcare in the united states So the science uh, folks are going to have something to say there if you're going to build back better uh, whether it's um, robotics or or AI or whatever it might be again, uh, computer science science has got a role there as well. Um, technology, information technology is rapidly evolving. There are national security challenges that are science related. Uh, people are trying to manipulate the weather uh, as a, as a national security advantage. People obviously are trying to in, in, infiltrate some of our technology systems. That's science based. So. That, that's a very important job. Uh, and I guess what what I would hope is that, again, USDA gets a bit of time, uh, uh, if you will, or or a focus. Uh, it's so big, so many things going on. It's pretty easy to forget about uh, a, a department here or there. So it's going to be up to us at USDA to make sure we, we remind them of the important role that the uh, agriculture department can play in this area.
1: Well, and it seems that that there may be one of the roles, I think rightly so, that USDA has typically played is engaging much more with rural communities. And I would see that as being another role that USDA could play in that intersection with that new office.
0: Right, and it's it it really, I think it starts, if you will, with the COVID situation. I mean, we've got to make sure people understand the science behind vaccinations. We have to make them understand that uh, these vaccines are, you know, 90, 95% effective uh, in in preventing uh, COVID or preventing a more serious uh, case of COVID. So uh, to the extent that we can get enough people vaccinated, then we get on the other side of this and we all can be free to travel again to, uh, to go out and be with one another. Uh, we're free to go and watch the Rockies play baseball or the Broncos play football or The Rams play whatever sport happens to be uh, happening at CSU at the time. I mean, it's really sad to see empty stadiums.
1: And can you speak a little bit too about the connections you see between those rural communities that USDA focuses on and and urban audiences, both maybe from the consumer side, but also the production side when it comes to to food urban ag.
0: Yeah, this well, gosh, this is a it's such an interesting conversation because. Uh, Those who the reason well, let me start it this way Uh, My son, Doug gave me a a book for my birthday. It's the first report of The Department of Agriculture when it was formed in 1862 It was required by Congress to issue an annual report to the president and to Congress on its activities Uh, In this uh, it's an incredible volume. It's 600 and some pages long at the beginning of it it talks about the importance of rural places it talks about the importance of agriculture uh, to guard against uh, a significant consolidation of agriculture uh, because of the value system that's so important to the future of the country and if you were to take the first 20 pages of that document and you were to maybe modernize the language just a little bit you would never ever ever know That this was discussing 1862, you would think it was discussing 2021. So in that respect, uh, I I think we continue to struggle with people now, the majority of people living in the country who just simply don't understand where their food comes from. They, They go to the grocery store, they go through the checkout line, they pay the grocer, they bag it, they take it home, they prepare it, they eat it. They don't stop and think, gosh, how many people are connected to this system? Where did this come from? How was it produced? Now, some people are beginning to ask those questions, but our Americans are so blessed because food is relatively inexpensive, which frees up resources for all the other things we like to do. It's incredibly available for most people, tragically, not for all, and it needs to be available for all. Uh, it's for the most part safe, certainly safer than a lot of other places in the world. Um, and so there are many benefits to the system and it, and there's so many people who are employed and connected to it. So one thing you would hope would happen, uh, especially as people in cities begin to think about, well, how could we convert that rooftop and use it for some positive purpose? Or how could we take that, uh, abandoned lot over there that, ha- that has been, um you know accumulating trash how can we convert that into a community garden that gives people the opportunity to grow you know, fresh fruits and, and vegetables uh, how can we create a, a, an opportunity to maybe install a hoop house um, in, in, a, in a green space uh, in a new subdivision so that people have that opportunity to extend the growing season how, how do we do that and as we do that gosh this is a this is a really hard these folks who farm and ranch they must really have a now all of a sudden you begin to develop a common a common language a common understanding of the challenges and difficulties of growing anything and raising anything and then maybe you have an understanding of of the of the policies the practices the the the, the ways in which that system works and you then have a conversation about how you Improve the system, uh, and I think climate and the discussion of climate is the is the unifying factor here. I think producers out in the countryside understand and appreciate that the current system, especially COVID, has under underscored this. It is really, really dependent on a number of factors that ranchers and farmers don't control. They've got a, a tariff is assessed because of political considerations, the market disappears, the farmer's stuck. It it doesn't rain, farmer doesn't produce, he or she's stuck. And and I think if, if, if we focus on climate, we can basically say to those producers, hey, there's a way in which you could potentially be paid for the use of your land for climate purposes. You could be paid to capture methane from your dairy operation, and maybe it goes on the grid, and it helps the REC there not have to build a huge, expensive generation facility. Or maybe you can uh, take that manure, and maybe there are ways in which you can separate the the solids from the water and reclaim the water so we don't have uh, a water shortage, both in the cities and, and on your farm. And we take the solids, and we create a little manufacturing facility down the road that converts it into something more valuable. Now all of a sudden we're not over applying it to land, we're not jeopardizing the quality of water, we're creating jobs, and we're creating new income opportunity. And you know what? We're also reducing your emissions. So the city folks go, well, gosh, you kind of like that notion of reduced. So new farm income, reduced emissions. Now all of a sudden there's a sharing of values. And maybe that makes it easier for people in the state legislature and people in Congress and governors and presidents. To be able to advocate for resources to to encourage that future,
1: you know, it sounds a lot like what is fundamental to what you're describing is sort of a better understanding of the system overall, both by residents and farmers and ranchers in the in rural areas, and also well, and residents in small towns. Not everyone in a small town is a farmer and rancher, but also within the urban area, right? It's sort of a system wide approach, right?
0: It is, and and frankly. Um, it would also i think make us more sensitive to the role that we as consumers play in all of this so you say what are you you talking about what what, i don't play anywhere i just buy the food i don't have any i don't i don't not involved in decision making about how farmers do what they do well actually you do because when we essentially say to people uh to farmers in the food industry hey we want our food pretty pretty inexpensively and we want our food um that where we can buy it pretty quickly where we're literally in a car and we can go through a restaurant and get a bag and eat while we drive and do 16 things at one time um and we want food that when we go home we're not going to spend an hour and a half fixing it we want to be able to put it in a microwave and zap it for you know two minutes and have a nice meal uh we we have sent the message to the system that this is what we want well if you want that It requires a degree of uniformity that becomes incredibly efficient, but requires an environment that's controlled Um, and an environment that that creates sort of a uniform standard product. Every single you know, there's no differentiation. It can be easily converted into a quarter pound patty or, or into a McRib sandwich, and then all of a sudden. It, you, it dawns on you, well, geez, maybe I am part of this system. Maybe I am making decisions. Maybe I'm sending a signal. Now, I think the signals are changing. I think people are saying, hey, we, we kind of like to know where it comes from. We want to know if it's sustainably produced. We, you know we don't like this additive or that additive. And the market's beginning to send those messages. but it's you, you know it's uh, people have to understand they've got a role here. And they can't just point the finger at the farmer and say, oh, my gosh, you know, you need to be doing this and this and this. When with your purchasing decisions, you're making you're you're, you're providing a different signal. Uh, and I think part of what we need to do at USDA is c- to continue to educate how we can create uh, more of a consensus and unity over this rather than uh, uh, fussing and fighting about it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And I can confirm that the market is moving in this direction. Just from my personal experience, you know, I see things come through my my social media feeds now and then there's a new company. I don't remember what it's called. There's probably more than one that are um, selling the, you know, all the vegetables that look a little funny um, that that don't sort of meet the, that what you're saying about uniformity. Um, and for, for those of us who are on the let's not waste food bandwagon, um, they certainly have found their target market. I'm happy to eat a strange looking turnip um, that's just as healthy and fine. It just happened to grow a little bit, you know, at a, at a bit of an angle. <laughs> so you, you,
0: you might have to convince me to, to eat a fine looking turnip. <laughs>
1: okay. Well, that. I chose the wrong <laughs> example. Um, yeah, no, I don't know. There, No,
0: I, I actually, we, uh, is actually, uh, had, we're having a, a number of those uh, types of vegetables in, in a salad that she's making. So I've, I'm, I'm laughing about it, but the, the point of it is, you're right. I mean, it, it, instead of that that being thrown away, it now becomes a sort of a value-added specialty product, right? And now it's like you want to get the ugliest looking turnip that you can possibly find so that you can show it off to your friends That's and That's right.
1: I have no food waste bragging rights when I serve that yeah. particular yeah. vegetable. Yeah. So a, a little bit of a of a right turn here. As you're looking forward to your new role with USDA, are, are there things about how you have pivoted during COVID that you think will stick in the long-term as you move into that role?
0: Well, I, 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 absolutely, I don't think, uh, I think I'll be able to be, to, to visit with more people more frequently, utilizing a combination of personal and, and virtual. Um, you know, if you went to Commodity Classic, for example, say it was in Nashville, Tennessee, you'd have to get on a plane, you'd have to fly to Nashville, you'd appear at the conference, you'd circle around to various booths, and then you'd come back, you'd fly back to Washington, DC. So you're talking about portions of probably two or maybe three days. Maybe now uh, you appear at at that um, uh, at, at virtually, and you can also appear uh, to the Farm Bureau and you can do a speech to the Nutrition Association and you can talk to the uh, rural development folks and you can maybe even have a presentation at a great land grant university like CSU all on the same day. So instead of talking to five or 600 people, you may end up talking to 5,000 people. And you do that every single day, all of a sudden you you are significantly improving uh the communication and then when you use social media, you can amplify and multiply the the impact of that message. So I think from a communications perspective that's 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 key. You know, I think from a from an operational standpoint, the challenge is going to be for us to figure out how to make things more convenient. So, for example, we talked about nutrition security. You know, the to to apply for SNAP, you have to go through a lot of steps to convince the state government that's administering the program that you're entitled to it you have to have personal visits and you got to bring your tax returns and there's a b- bunch of things you got to do. Well, why do we why do we require somebody to travel to an office? Uh especially a, a family that's struggling financially that maybe maybe they don't have a car that operates, maybe they don't have access to public transportation. Maybe they, you know, maybe it's just difficult for them. Maybe they're working two jobs and can't can't, can't find the time to get there when the office is open well, why, why can't we figure out ways to use technology to make that program more convenient? And by the way, since that family is also applying for a number of other programs, why can't the computers figure out how the programs can talk to one another so I don't have to fill out 16 forms? I only have to fill out one form. Well, we I think the goal here, the pressure is going to be on making things more convenient. And why do we say, Uh, that SNAP benefits can only be redeemed at grocery stores, especially for people that don't have a grocery store, right? Uh, Now that we've had uh, in-home delivery of meals, does that change the equation? Does that change the way in which the food assistance programs are going to operate? Well, you know, we've got the food box program uh, that that has, has some people that think it's great and some people that have concerns about it. How do we, does that alter the way in which we think about how we help families, um, and so I think there's, you know, I think we're going to be challenged to figure out speed and convenience and reach and greater access, all by while still maintaining integrity of in the program. Not necessarily an easy task, but I think one that because of COVID, I think people are going to exp- are, are going to get used to the convenience of being able to do things at home. They're going to want to know why they have to go out on a winter's day and travel to an office, sit in line, waste a day uh, to be able to get benefits. It's a a fair question.
1: In addition to talking about COVID-19, as we look back over the last year or so, it's critical that we reflect on the Black Lives Matter movement and conversations around diversity and equity, conversations that have been going on for decades but have had increased prominence in recent months. Can you speak more about what isn't working for people of color within food and agriculture and what you hope to do to fix those problems?
0: Well, it's been a cascading problem. Um, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, you'd walk into a USDA office in some locations. As a black farmer, you'd apply for a loan. Um, And your application would be put in a pile. Uh, it, it wouldn't be dealt with uh, at, because even though it was at the top of the pile, it wouldn't necessarily be dealt with in a timely way. And maybe, maybe late, 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 late in the growing season, you get notice that your credit has been approved. Maybe the interest rate's a little higher, so you 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 don't get as you don't get as productive a crop because you planted later. You have to pay a higher interest rate, so maybe you don't. Uh, you're not able to save much tough times come you lose the farm conversely a white farmer down the road got the loan on time got the better interest rate has enough to weather the storm and by the way probably has enough to buy the land when your when your farm uh is lost so it, it it's a it's a cascading effect that's occurred over a period of time so the question then is what what can we do about it? Well, w- one thing we found out we find out is that a lot of people don't know how to access the programs So th- we have to identify the, the 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 deep systemic barriers that exist Maybe maybe you got the lo- Maybe you didn't get the loan and you appeal that decision to a county appeal board Appeal board that was elected supposedly by the people in that county The problem is not everybody voted or maybe those people were discouraged from voting. So there's no minority representation on that county So maybe you don't get the break that the white farmer who's concerned about his loan conditions got so it's just it's a combination of factors So we have to look at the programs. We have to figure out How better to provide technical assistance? We have to figure out what adjustments in fairness need to be made given that cascading effect uh, we have to look for ways in which we can uh, provide a, an opportunity, if you will, to catch up. Uh, and then how do we create systems that don't recreate the problem five years from now? and ten? Years? So we have just this, this vicious cycle that keeps happening generation after generation. I don't, Jocelyn, I don't have all the answers, and I don't think anybody does. But I think a combination of folks who will really sort of delve deeply into this we'll come up with a number of recommendations to to improve our our processes and then it's about metrics if you measure it people pay attention to it so we need to measure uh, and pay attention to how much resource is being allocated to uh, socially disadvantaged producers how much is going uh, of, re- of usda resources are going into socially disadvantaged persistently poor areas of the country you know the the, the reality is, that there are there are counties in this country Where the poverty level has been higher than 20 percent For 30 years or more Representative Clyburn believes and I think he's got a point that at least 10 percent of usda resources should be invested in those counties Because how do you explain persistently? The persistent poverty for 30 years that doesn't get help pretty hard to say that that's fair so I think there's, you know, there's a lot of work that has to be done.
1: And it seems that I know you've been doing this already, having conversations where you're listening to some of the concerns of farmers and ranchers of color, people who um, found that the system hasn't, you know, to your point that there are systemic problems that that make the, the system inequitable. How do you ensure that you continue to have those diverse voices at the table to advise, to critique, to help with that measurement and, and setting those metrics over time?
0: Well, you make sure that you have a diverse workforce to start with people who's and it's not just diversity just uh, sort of uh, You know, okay, I've got Six of this and five of these and four of these you need people uh, as representative Thompson reminded me You need people with a proper perspective people who have gone through this who have who had themselves or people that they are close to have gone through this So they have they have a, a sensitivity to it um you know, I I just use, I I I was born in an orphanage. Okay, that makes me an orphan. Well, I, my orphan experience is probably a lot different than a lot of other orphans. All right, my I was orphaned for like seven months. Uh, there are a lot of people who orphaned for most of their uh, childhood. I can't necessarily relate to those folks because I haven't had their experience. So we need people who have had varieties of experiences in this space to come and say, "Well, wait a minute." What about this circumstance? Or what about, here's what happened to me. How do we deal with that in this new system? So it starts with a diverse workforce. It starts with a clear direct in, direction from leadership. And certainly, clearly, the president and vice president have been very clear about this. This is a priority. It's not just the USDA. It's throughout the entire federal government. It's throughout the entire country. We've got to understand the world as it is and as, as it's going to be. It has to be diverse it has to be inclusive it's in our collective best interest for that to happen and we all have to be committed to it and then it's metrics it's basically uh, holding yourself to a standard and meeting that standard or if you're not finding out why and what what has to change so that gets back to representative clyburn's 10 20, 30 program or, or it gets back to having uh, someone charged with the responsibility of saying hey you're not you're not getting the job done maybe it's an ombudsman maybe it's uh An Oversight board. Maybe it's some kind of mechanism for ensuring that you are held uh, accountable Uh, And then it's uh, you know, you invest in your priorities You make it a priority you figure out ways in which you can utilize the resources of your department uh, in a creative way to, to try to provide some degree of help and assistance and I think we're at a different place in the country than we were 12 years ago Uh, When I became secretary the first time I I, I think there's a much greater sensitivity and I think there's a a Greater sense of urgency urgency about getting this done Or starting to do it in a meaningful way and you know, it's hard because It I don't know what I don't know I mean, I haven't had the experience as a black person. I, I I don't know what it would be like to have children and literally be frightened every single day when they walk out the door that they may not come back I, I, I mean, I didn't have that experience raising my two sons We're going grew, grew up in a small town where we didn't lock the doors So how can I possibly understand How that feels but I can certainly have people explain it to me And explain what within the system creates that fear and then we can address one of the root causes of that so that over time people can become less anxious about their kids leaving every single day for school or walking down uh, to the grocery store or whatever. I mean, that would be just a frightening experience if you were a parent that every single day you were literally and understandably scared that your child wouldn't survive the day. Can't imagine that.
1: There, there are many of us who, who can't imagine that, and I, I think one of the the things that, that, that we are interested in in our work with the CSU SPUR campus is helping to not only uh, be able to have people be, Im- be able to imagine what it is like to be in other people's shoes, but also to imagine a different future for themselves, um, potentially in part based on the stories of other people. I want to shift gears a little bit to talk... Um, And you've touched on this in some of your comments to talk a little bit about your story. I might hazard a guess that when you were, say, a five, six year old, you didn't say someday I want to be the secretary of agriculture. But here you are taking that job on twice. Um, And, you know, I I think one of the things that spur that we want to do is sort of show this is a path that is available to you no matter who you are and where you come from. So can you tell us a little bit about how it is that that you have ended up where you are and a little bit of that path? And it's not exactly a straight line.
0: Well, we, we we just have a couple of minutes, so I won't uh, to tell you the whole life story. But, uh, you know, frankly, if my parents were alive today and they knew that I was a secretary of agriculture once. They would think the country is really in trouble. And if they knew I had the opportunity to do it twice, they would they just wouldn't understand it because there's nothing about my growing up in the city of Pittsburgh in the middle of the city that would have suggested that I was prepared for this for this job. I was fortunate to meet a young lady in college uh, who came from a small town in, in Iowa. Uh, I went to law school. Her dad was a lawyer. He offered me an opportunity to come back and practice law with him, which I did. And I began to immerse myself in small town life and and, and enjoy the incredible richness of, of being part of a community. Um, far different, far different experience than what I uh, experienced as a kid growing up in a city. Uh, and were it not for tragedy in our community, I probably wouldn't be speaking to you today. Uh, but the mayor of our town was shot and killed uh, by a... Uh, a citizen who was upset over a sewer problem that had not been fixed, uh, and because I had been involved in community activities and affairs, people thought I could uh, provide leadership to the community during a tough time. Um, I was elected mayor, uh, and I realized that I enjoyed public service. I enjoyed the the challenge of it. I enjoyed the decision making process of it. Um, and I was mayor for five years. I tried the state senate for six years. And realized I wasn't a legislator. Uh, Ran for governor, uh, somehow became the first democratic governor in my state for, in 30 years um, and served for eight years and term limited myself. And then I thought my political career was over. I ran briefly for president, uh, chose the year that Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden <laughs> uh, decided to run at the same time. So um, that was short-lived, but it was an interesting experience. But I got a chance to know people. and. Uh, then President Obama gave me this amazing opportunity and and uh, it was such an amazing opportunity. I kept it for eight years uh, and really thought my career was over until uh, President-elect Biden called me and said that he had bad news for me. Uh, he wanted me back at USDA. Um, and and obviously, uh, I've obviously known him for over 30 years and just can't figure out how to say no to the guy. So um, here I am, um, public service. It's a, It's really about... Uh, trying to solve problems um i grew up in a family i was adopted into a family where my mom uh struggled with the addiction uh issues and and i and i think as a young youngster and growing up in a circumstance like that you 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 try to solve that problem you can't solve it and it's frustrating because because you just don't have the capacity to solve it you want to solve it and i think that's uh, that's those intractable problems have always sort of uh, attracted me because i i just want to I want to i want to make a difference in my life uh, we we are blessed to have life and uh i want to make sure i take full advantage of it
1: wonderful thank you for for sharing that and sharing your story I, again I, I think we want to be sure that everyone understands that there are ways that they can work on these big challenges regardless of what their background is what their interests are that that all everything intersects with these big challenges in some way so appreciate your your uh, sharing that
0: a good aspect of this so is the educational component? I mean, the key is taking full advantage of that educational opportunity. You know that a CSU operates, uh, offers, land grant universities offer, uh, or community colleges, whatever, whatever it is. That, that there is an opportunity for relationships, for new new challenges to be identified, for you to find your passion. And I think I'll, I'll leave you with this, Justin. I think the the key here for people in finding their passion is where time doesn't matter. When you're doing something and it doesn't make any difference whether you've done it for two hours or six hours or eight hours or 12 hours, you still love doing it. You're not looking at the clock. You're thinking, oh, my God, I got another hour of this. When you find that kind of work or that kind of whatever in your life, seize it because that's where your passion is. And, and for me, public service, I, I enjoyed the practice of law, but public service is a place where I could literally spend all my time uh, and be you know, pretty happy doing it. So. That's where my passion is, and I've been very lucky to be able to follow it.
1: Thank you so much for your time. We are, we are running out of time here, but I will ask one last question, our spur-of-the-moment question, which is actually related to what you were just talking about. And that, that question is, if you were not to have gone into this career of public service that, that you described, what would you have been?
0: Well, as I, I, obviously I practice law, and I enjoy doing that. What I really wanted to do was to teach, but I realized I didn't have what it took to be a teacher. I, I think that's, besides farming, I think teaching is one of the most, if not the most difficult job there is. Uh, I had the experience of, of trying to teach a class during a summer school program that I was involved with. It was 45 minutes of the most excruciating part of my life. I, mean, I, I, I had prepared all night for the class. I thought I had plenty of material. I used it up in the first 10 minutes. And of course I had students who were in summer school. So you can imagine they weren't necessarily the most energetic and enthusiastic people to be there. And it was, it was difficult. It was painful. And I, I walked out of that room and I said, well, that's it. I, 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 there's no, no way I can be a teacher. Um, so anybody who teaches, I have a profound respect for because it is really, really hard to do. So maybe I would have tried it a second time, but fortunately for the students of of the past and future who might've been my students, I didn't have that opportunity and I have this incredible chance to be secretary of agriculture again, if there something that confirms me.
1: Thank you so much for your time today, Secretary Vilsack. I, I very much appreciate it. I know you're incredibly busy right now. Thanks, Johnson. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If so, please share it with a young person in your life maybe our next scientist, artist, farmer or rancher, social justice advocate, or educator, and leave us a review to help others find the show. The Spur of the Moment podcast is produced by Peach Islander Productions, and our theme music is by Ketza. Please visit the show notes for links mentioned during today's episode, and for more information on how to follow Secretary Vilsack's work and connect with the U.S. Department of Agriculture on social media. Another big thanks to Secretary Vilsack for joining us today. We hope that you will join us for the next Spur of the Moment episode. Episodes drop every two weeks. Until then, be well.